Welcome to Bible Worm. We're on hiatus until September 2021, but this summer we're replaying our 2020 series on the Hebrew Festival Scrolls. This week, enjoy our episode on Esther 3 and 7 from August 2nd, 2020. Happy listening, and see you in September. Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm. Welcome to Bible Worm. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, here each week with my good friend, Dr. Robert Williamson. We are two Bible scholars and people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. Bobby is a professor of religion at Hendricks College in Conway, Arkansas, and the founding pastor at Mercy Church in Little Rock. I'm the director of lifelong learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. Together, we are Bible Worm, the wriggly superhero you never knew you needed. This week, we meet Queen Esther, winner of some biblical version of The Bachelor. We learn about the blood feud between the people of Haman and the people of Mordecai, and we see the all-too-familiar trope that Jews, or anyone deemed an outsider really, is a danger to the kingdom. We see loyalty without uniformity in action. And we see all kinds of different models for standing up to the artificial and dangerous power structures in the world. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Bobby. Hey, Amy. How are you this week? I'm doing pretty well. So we are in our second week of reading the book of Esther. Yeah, we are. Last week we met Vashti, but we are starting this week in chapter three. So we actually have skipped the chapter where we officially meet Esther and where she becomes queen. Yeah. So can you offer us a little plot catch up? Yeah. So what has happened, of course, at the end of the last chapter is Vashti, for reasons we talked about last time, has lost her position as the queen. So what happens is the king's servants say to him, you need a new queen. And they have this contest that they do, which is like a really like terrible version of the bachelor, basically, where they like (laughs) go out in the kingdom (laughs) and they like snatch up all the beautiful women and they sequester them away in this house. And then they each get a night with the king and whoever pleases him the most uh, is is to become the new queen. And so Mm, so disgusting. My God, (laughs) it's a terrible, terrible. (laughs) Do, Do not try this at home. So Esther, whom we meet, her Hebrew name is Hadassah, her Persian name is Esther, and she is one of the women who's taken into this contest. And so her cousin Mordecai tells her not to tell anyone that she's Jewish. And so Esther enters into this contest and hides the fact that she's Jewish. She pleases the king. She becomes the new queen. So when we pick up in chapter three, we have Esther, this Jewish woman who is now the queen of Persia. And no one knows that she's Jewish. There's one other thing that's told almost as an aside at the end of chapter two that I think is relevant, which is that Mordecai overhears some eunuchs plotting against the king and speaks up about it. Yeah. And so saves the king from this plot. And the king knows it's him. It's reported in his name. Yeah. Okay. So we are starting at the beginning of chapter three, verses one through six. Some time afterwards, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. He advanced him and seated him higher than any of his fellow officials. All the king's courtiers in the palace gate knelt and bowed low to Haman, for such was the king's order concerning him. 
But Mordecai would not kneel or bow low. Then the king's courtiers who were in the palace gate said to Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's order? When they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's resolve would prevail, for he had explained to them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel or bow low to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, having been told who Mordecai's people were. Haman plotted to do away with all the Jews, Mordecai's people, throughout the kingdom of Ahasuerus. Whoa, that escalated really quickly. <laughs> no, I was just thinking how unstable the leadership of the Persian Empire is I- <laughs> in this text. Like, yeah, we go from, hey, everything's great, to like, let's kill all the Jews of the empire in just an instant right there. So first of all, there's this mention that Haman is an Agagite. Yeah. A descendant of Agag. And that's an important piece of the puzzle here. So Agag is an Amalekite king who comes up in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 8. Yeah. And there's this story where Saul has conquered the king and his people, but Saul has King Saul at the time has been instructed to destroy everything that he's conquered, but he doesn't. And it is because of this that he is told that the kingdom is being taken from him. The kingship is being taken yeah. from him. So going all the way back to that, there is this real attention to the deeply troubled relationship between the Amalekites, specifically anyone descended from Agag and the Jews. Yeah, so it's interesting to see that backstory. And because one of the questions is, why is Haman so like quick to be angry with the entire Jewish people. And that gives you a little bit of a possibility. Like he is named as an Agagite long, long ago in the time of Saul, the Israelites killed the people and executed his distant ancestor. Of course, the destruction of the Agagite, the Amalekites and and Agag in 1 Samuel 15 is in retribution for another story that happened back in Exodus chapter 17, where the Israelites are coming out of Mm-hmm. captivity and exodus and for no apparent reason the amalekites attack them as they're coming out of egypt at the end of that chapter in exodus 17 god says that god's going to destroy the amalekites from the face of the earth for this thing that they did and so we've got this kind of blood feud that goes all the way back to the exodus that's yeah, sort of underlining this mm-hmm. underline this story yeah okay so then we we hear that everyone is supposed to bow low to haman yeah Because this is something that the king has commanded concerning him. Yeah. Why won't Mordecai bow? Well, I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of just want to leave it there to to see what you say about it. I mean, certainly there are interpreters who say it's for religious reasons. Yeah. But it seems like biblical Jews or Israelites do seem to be allowed to bow to superiors. I think that's right. Yeah. And we see it in Genesis, although Genesis is super early, but we see it in Exodus 18. We see it in 1 Kings 1. So I'm not inclined to think that the issue was a religious one. Yeah. Maybe it was, I don't know, maybe it was the Agag relationship. He doesn't want to show, you know, yeah. deference to his his blood feud foe. You get the sense all the way back in chapter 2 when Mordecai tells Esther not to reveal that she's Jewish that Mordecai knows that there's this kind of anti-Jewish sentiment that's sort of lurking under the surface of the empire. Even though in chapter two, we have no reason to 
think that at all. Right. I think Mordecai might be actually trying to provoke something here. That's not in the text exactly. But I think you're right that he's he doesn't want to bow down because this guy is an Agagite and he knows that he's anti-Jewish and he's either he's either being stubborn mm-hmm. or he's trying to like, let me see what I can provoke. Like, I want to call this anti-Jewish sentiment out into the public instead of Ooh. letting it sort of be behind the scenes. Fester in the background. When I had first read the story, or for, I mean, for a long time before I really started studying this text, I sort of always thought this was like, you know, Haman marched out and said, bow down to me, Mordecai. And Mordecai was like, no, I refuse. But that's not what happens that's here. Right. Haman doesn't even notice that he's not bowing down. Yeah. So there's these other cast of characters that are also at the gate who sort of tattle on yeah. Mordecai. So I like your reading. He's not bowing because he's a Jew. And also these other people tattle on him because he's a Jew. And so mm-hmm. there's this kind of marking of him, of him as a ethnically or religiously different. And that makes him a target in this different kind of way. And then I think it gets even weirder in the next verse, in verse six. So Haman wouldn't lay, he didn't want to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Yeah. Because he was told who Mordecai's people were. Yeah. So he then decides the best thing to do is just to do away with all of them. Yeah. Why wouldn't he want to lay a hand on Mordecai because he was a Jew, but he's happy to kill all the Jews? Like, did they have some kind of stick-together power that would be nullified if he killed all the Jews, but might be evoked if he killed just one Jew? So I read this as not so much that Haman didn't want to mess with Mordecai, but he didn't want to only mess with Mordecai. So it's not enough for him to get rid of Mordecai. He wants to get rid of the whole of Mordecai's people. And, you know, in order to make sense out of that, in my mind, you have to read it with the backstory that you were talking about earlier about Agag and Saul. And so when he finds out he's a Jew, then this kind of rage about this whole past, you know, this blood feud comes to the fore. And so he thinks it's not enough to to take out Mordecai, but he wants to take out all of the Jewish people. I can see that. So it could either be that it's not enough to kill just one person, like his rage is so great and the feud is so great that it has to be all the people and this is his opportunity to do that. Yeah. Or I also can see it as he he sees the the Jewish people so much as a unit mm-hmm. that you can't kill just one of them. Oh. Maybe because it would start up the feud again or maybe I don't know. So if you kill the one, then the rest of them are going to come to his aid. Maybe. Yeah, if you kill the one it would be dangerous, but if you kill all of them That makes good sense to me. Yeah. You know, I kind of, if you read it against the backdrop of 1 Samuel 15, then, you know, like God commanded Saul to kill all the Amalekites. And so, you know, it's kind of the natural response is yeah, to say, yeah. well, let's just kill all the Jews. Yeah. And I mean, these kind of work, this kind of working in these massive numbers of like people lose their individuality and they just become part of this people group. That's an interesting yeah. dynamic. Text. Yeah. And I think that dynamic's all over the place in this text. Yeah. Okay, you ready? Yeah. In the first month, that is the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, Pur, which means the lot, was cast before Haman concerning every day and every month until it fell on the 12th month, that is the month of Adar. Haman then said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the other peoples in all the provinces of your realm 
whose laws are different from those of any other people and who do not obey the king's laws, and it is not in your majesty's interest to tolerate them. If it please your majesty, let an edict be drawn for their destruction, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver to the stewards for deposit in the royal treasury. Thereupon the king removed his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the foe of the Jews. And the king said, The money and the people are yours to do with as you see fit. Do you want to try to describe what's happening here in case people are not familiar with the practice of casting lots? Yeah, so the casting of lots is a way of sort of inviting divine intervention into a decision that one is making. And so where we think of rolling dice as sort of random chance, in the ancient world, rolling dice was an opportunity. Casting lots was an opportunity for the gods to kind of turn the result the way that they wanted. Mm -hmm. And so here, what Haman seems to be doing is he wants to carry out this plan, but he, he wants divine approval of the plan. And so by casting lots to figure out when he should do it, that's sort of a way of consulting the, the divine will for, for what's going to happen. Or at least that's kind of the way I read that. How, how do you read that? Yeah, yeah, no, that's how I, that's how I read it too. I just, it, <laughs> it reminds me of these, like, <laughs> these parenting techniques that they teach you where, like, you give limited choices. Like, you don't ask a kid, do you want to go to school or not? You say, do you want to put on your shoes first or put on your coat first? You know, it's yeah. like, <laughs> so Heyman doesn't say, like, is it a good idea that I should, you know, massacre all the Jews? He says, would you like me to do it on Tuesday or Thursday? And then the lots tell him which one to do. Yeah. But plot-wise, I also think it reflects just how little the king is really involved in this. Like, yeah. Haman's putting together a very complete plan before he brings the issue to the king at all. Now, the way that Haman makes the proposal is so interesting to me. So in verse 8, he says, a certain group of people, but he never names that group of people. The word Jew, I don't think is ever... I don't think anybody ever says it to the king, actually, now that I think about it. We'll have to look in chapter seven. But yeah. certainly here, Haman doesn't say it. And so, the, I mean, Haman's pitch is there are some people, they have their own laws, which is true. They don't obey the king's law, which is not true. Right? Mm -hmm. Jews living in diaspora mm -hmm. are observant of the law of the land, unless it violates their religious law in some way. But- he sort of made this law, this kind of interesting law and order argument that you still hear versions of today. There's this group of you people, sure they're do. different from us, they don't follow our customs, and therefore they're dangerous. That's his pitch. And this, I mean, I, it really, it gives me chills to read this because this, uh, this trope has been used against Jewish people for all manner of anti-Semitic activity from the time of the Book of Esther to the present and, and against other peoples too. Yeah. But yeah, this idea that if people have some other culture or some other set of practices, that they cannot also be loyal citizens of the place where they are living, which we know to be crazy because Mordecai just showed this great act of loyalty to the king in chapter two. Oh, yeah, that, I hadn't put that together, but that's exactly right. So he has actually protected the law of the land. He's protected the king just a mm -hmm. chapter earlier. Haman provides no evidence, and there's a sense in which no evidence is really needed right? There's yeah. just this kind of accusation. <laughs> the king doesn't care. <laughs> yeah. The other thing that Haman does, you know, like one wonders, maybe the, maybe the king would have been really upset about that information and, and approved this plan. 
But Haman speaks the king's language in this la- in verse 9, in which he says, I will hand over 10,000 key cars of silver, uh-huh. which is about 70, like, so a key car of That's silver. That's a lot is, of money. It's 75 pounds per key car. So we're talking 75,000 pounds of silver, which is enormous. And one scholar calculated that this would have been about two thirds of the entire budget of the Persian empire for a year. Mm-hmm. Basically what he's saying is I'll pay you a lot of money if you'll let me do this thing. And so the king motivated by this kind of vague sense of danger from this unnamed people group who mm-hmm. violates unspecified laws and this massive amount of money, that's all it really takes for the king to be persuaded. Yeah. And, and when Haman's talking to the king and he says, you know, sort of, it's not in your interest to tolerate these people. Yeah. The, the word that that's used for like the king's interest is sort of like, it's not to the king's profit. Oh, like, that's it's not, interesting. There's no that. profit to it. So here, I'll hand you some cash instead. And that'll be much more to your profit. Oh, that's really interesting. And I think it's really funny at the end here that the king says, the money and the people are yours to do with as you say fit. Well, the money was his. <laughs> yeah. There are scholars who interpret that the money is under your power, who read it as like, well, it's your money. Not that the king is saying here, Haman, have the money to do what you want. But the king is saying, if you want to give me 75,000 pounds of silver to do this thing, like, go for it, dude. Like, you you can spend your money the way you want to do it, then I will gladly accept it. It's not entirely clear what the king is saying there, but I think that's a reasonable interpretation of it. Okay, so that's all we're going to read from chapter three. Yeah. And we actually are going to skip now all the way up to chapter seven. Yeah. Can I ask you again to do a little plot summary of what we have missed? So as the Jews are getting this order from Haman, they're starting to go out into the street wearing sackcloth and ashes and in a time of mourning, kind of an act of protest. And Mordechai is one of them, and he's in the capital city of Susa protesting. And the king has a policy that you're not allowed to come past the king's gate if you are in mourning. He doesn't want to hear your complaining. And so Don't Mordecai... quit your whining. <laughs> exactly. What a guy. So Mordecai <laughs> has gone as far as he can go, and he's kind of creating a little bit of a stir. And so Esther sends her eunuchs down and says, hey, what are you up to? And Mordecai explains the story and asks Esther to do something, to which she responds, I'm not allowed to go to the king because he has this order that people can't see him unless... He invites them. And mm-hmm. Mordecai very famously tells Esther, maybe it's for a time just like this one that you have become the queen. Here's your mm-hmm. opportunity to save your people. And so Esther, in, in, that, in response to that, has kind of gotten engaged in this effort to save her people from inside the palace. And we'll see as we go. She is really amazingly strategic about how she does it. So Esther has gone into the king. She's found favor with him. He's invited her in. And she has said, instead of like, oh my gosh, king, can you save my people? He offers her whatever she wants up to half the kingdom. And what she does is invites him to dinner. And he and Haman come to dinner. He offers again, you can have anything you want up to half the kingdom. She again says, hey, can you just, why don't you and Haman come back to dinner again tomorrow night? So where we pick up in chapter seven is this kind of second dinner that Esther has offered for the king and Haman. And, you know, you kind of imagine that Haman's feeling like kind of on top of the world, right? He's the king's Mm -hmm. secondhand man. 
the queen keeps inviting him over to dinner and has no idea of what Esther is working on behind the scenes. Yeah. And Esther, as you said, has really strategically sort of built up her social capital with the king. You know, he's offered a couple times already to give her what she wants and she just keeps sort of building her capital and build like invest reinvesting that you know (laughs) that is really well said yeah okay so now we are at the beginning of chapter seven and let's dive in so the king and haman came to feast with queen esther on the second day the king again asked esther at the wine feast what is your wish queen esther it shall be granted you and what is your request even to half the kingdom it shall be fulfilled Queen Esther replied, If your majesty will do me the favor, and if it pleases your majesty, let my life be granted me as my wish, and my people as my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, massacred, and exterminated. Had we only been sold as bondsmen and bondswomen, I would have kept silent, but the adversary is not worthy of the king's trouble. Okay, so so finally... Esther is ready to sort of cash in. (laughs) Yeah. Right? And because the king asks her this question in a way that seems sort of poetic, what is your wish and what is your request? Yeah. That I see as sort of asking the same question twice. Esther is going to take advantage of that and say, my wish is for my own life, which seems so... Like, that seems like a really small wish. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, like he's saying half the kingdom and she's like, how about just let me live? Yeah, no, I love the way that you said that because she, she does, she starts very small and very personal. Yeah. Because the king is motivated by his kind of personal interests and his emotions. And so to start with, my wish is my life. Like that's kind of striking an emotional chord with him. And then to say the life of my people, sort of moving from that personal thing to the, to the larger issue. And so she started with this emotional appeal. She has not named who her people are, and she has Mm -mm. not explained in what way they are in danger. So she's Mm kind of, she's easing her way, easing her way. Yeah, I mean, it it almost like, I wonder if it occurred to the king that Esther has a people, you know? Like, she's, they don't relate to each other in that way. And Esther, you know, has has not been forthcoming about being a Jew in the palace. And Haman has not explained that it's the Jews that he has put an edict out for. That's right. In this interesting way, then she also, in the same way that Haman did, makes an economic argument. In verse 4, I'm reading in the Common English Bible, we have been sold to be wiped out, killed, and destroyed. So some unnamed person yet is going to kill us all. And that is economically, that is bad for you, king. Because if we were going to be sold into slavery, we could still make profit for you, and I wouldn't even be here bothering you. But if we get wiped out, like you're going to lose all the income, all the tax dollars we could have generated for you. And Mm -hmm. so this is hurting your bottom line. Mm -hmm. It's just such a brilliant strategy. Like here's this emotional appeal to this emotional guy. And then here's this economic appeal to this economically motivated guy. You're right. It it is so parallel to what Haman does. He does the appeal to the king's ego and says like these people are not listening to you. And then he does the economic appeal and she does exactly the same thing. Yeah. That's such a great point. And she has not said that her people are the Jews and she has not said that the danger comes from Haman who's sitting right, right. there. You, you, I like to try to picture what Haman is thinking about. Like he's like, oh no, <laughs> like he got sucked into this trap and he had no idea. And she, Esther is like slowly coming around yeah. to 
making the point and there's nothing he can do about it. No, uh, you're right. She is doing exactly what Heyman did. And, you know, in the ways that we just described, but also in offering only part of the information. Yeah. And sort of getting him to agree to something before he really knows what he's agreeing to. Yeah. She's so brilliant. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, she's pretty good. All right. Now... There's a highly dramatic scene. Ready? There's some drama here. Yeah, there is. Some drama. Okay, picking up in verse 5. Thereupon, King Ahasuerus demanded of Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who dared to do this? The adversary and the enemy, replied Esther. Is this evil Haman? <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and Haman cringed in terror before the king and the queen. The king, in his fury, left the wine feast for the palace garden, while Haman remained to plead with Queen Esther for his life, for he saw that the king had resolved to destroy him. When the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet room, Haman was lying prostrate on the couch on which Esther reclined. "'Does he mean,' cried the king, "'to ravish the queen in my own palace?' No sooner did these words leave the king's lips Then Haman's face was covered. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, What is more, a stake is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high, which Haman made from Mordecai, the man whose words saved the king. Impale him on it, the king ordered. So they impaled Haman on the stake, which he had put up for Mordecai, and the king's fury abated. Wow, what a story. That's... (laughs) Like, whoa. Yeah. So we have Esther's big reveal here, which is, I just, <laughs> she puts off as long as possible saying who it was. Who yeah, did this. yeah. She has the king so invested in destroying whoever this is. Yeah. But then the, what the king does in response is leaves. Yeah. <laughs> I can see why that happens for uh, staging purposes. <laughs> yeah. Like if we were making a movie, but. I don't know. What do you make of the way that this unfolds? Yeah, no, I, the, both of those observations, I think, are spot on. Esther, a man who hates an enemy, like it's like step by step. And then Haman. And by the time that she says the name, like he's done for, I think, whatever yeah. she said. And, you know, she's she's so smart because, I mean, Haman is the second in command, like he's the king's guy. And she's got to have a foolproof case that has made the king angry about Mm -hmm. the people and about Esther's life and about his economic prospects. And she's done Mm -hmm. all of that and then names Haman. The fact that the king leaves the room is really intriguing. And I mean, you're right. Like, in terms of the plot, it sets up this next kind of move. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I think it reinforces this idea that the king doesn't, he just does not know what to do ever. Mm-hmm. And he knows he's angry, but he doesn't, like when he was mad at Vashti, he called all his courtiers together. Mm-hmm. Now he has to leave the room. So he's got all these feelings, but he he cannot make a decision, it seems like, to save to save himself. And I think it's interesting here that we still don't, he still doesn't know who the people are. He doesn't know who Esther's peoples are, who Esther's people are. Yeah. But that doesn't matter. Mm-mm. So then while he's gone, I just find this next, like, the sort of staging of it almost (laughs) comical. Yeah. So Esther's reclining on the couch, which already I'm like, 
this doesn't seem like a relaxing scene where you'd be reclining on a couch. But Esther's reclining. Fine. And then Haman is lying prostrate on the couch where Esther is. So they're laying on a couch together. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. (laughs) Like I, in my head, he sort of like wrapped his arms around her legs or something like that. And this kind of like begging posture. But the Uh fact that she is reclined on the couch makes the begging posture like super awkward and suggestive. Uh Uh-huh. And the king sees that and is like, oh my goodness. Like if this wasn't bad enough, now you're molesting my wife. Like that's the end of that. Yeah. And that's the final straw. There's a threat to his wife. There's a threat to his money. But it hasn't become a personal threat until this moment. And now Haman has embarrassed the king. He has tried to, at least in the king's interpretation, he's tried to take the king's wife, which is like the worst thing you can do to a king. Both Mm -hmm. because, you know, presumably he loves his wife, but also because that's the sign of like his virility. And so if you sleep with the king's wife or take his harem or whatever it is, like you are, that's an attempt to usurp the A direct affront, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it has become exceedingly personal to the king, not until this moment. Uh, and that's what finally pushes the king over the edge. Yeah, I mean, it's I don't know, throughout this story, it's so interesting to see like the way that laws and edicts are really held up as really important and the way to get things done. But the way things really get done is, is totally personal, is behind the scenes yeah. and is in personal relationships. And that just, you know, those become, you can, you can write any law you want to go along with. Yeah, that's right. Where the people in power are yeah. personally. Yeah. It's interesting that even here, the king still doesn't know what to do, really. But it's Harbona, the eunuch, who says, hey, by the way, yeah. we had, back in the last chapter, set up a giant <laughs> stake in the It's like 100 feet tall, Bobby. It's like 100 feet tall. But he had, so, in the part we didn't read, Haman had put up that stake to kill Mordecai. And so there's this yep. beautiful turn of events that's sort of hoisted on his own petard kind of thing he's um (laughs) he sure is executed on his own stake yeah Uh, yeah and i mean it was intended to be this kind of dramatic you know like show of power you know put up this enormous phallic symbol in the courtyard and kill your enemy on it and now it's gonna happen to him yeah uh, too so i mean the the irony of it is is beautiful but it's the eunuch who comes up with that plan. The king still mm-hmm. didn't have a plan. He's like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. But it stands out to me that this eunuch has known all along that Mordecai, the words who saved the king, was going to be impaled on a giant stake. And I think we can assume that he never would have told the king, oh, hey, yeah. this this guy who's, <laughs> who saved your life is about to be impaled. Yeah. If Esther hadn't sort of opened the door for that. Yeah. It reminded me a little bit of what you were saying about Vashti last time, how her her act was for herself and also opens the door for other people to to act and to speak to, yeah. you know, someone's got to go first. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. One thing you were saying a minute ago was it really struck me was that the king still doesn't know that the people are Jews. Right. You know, this whole drama of the future of the Jews has taken place at the level of Haman on the one hand and Mordecai and Esther on the other. And the king has kind of hovered above this thing and enabled it in various ways, but he's never really known. Mm-hmm. If the question, if one of the questions of the book of Esther is like, what ought Jews to do? Or what is it like for Jews living in an, an empire that is not theirs? 
and which one could sort of stretch to like, what is it for all, you know, non-majority people? It is often the case, or at least it's the case in this text, that the the government itself or the ruler of the government mm-hmm. may not have any official animosity towards any of those people. And yet right. there might be danger if somebody in the structure does have animosity and knows how to manipulate the person in charge. And so the empire can be dangerous, even if the empire is neutral, officially, the empire can be dangerous because of whoever is in power at the, at the moment. Yeah. So we have touched on some really interesting thoughts and themes related to how power works in the world. Yeah. What would you want to pull out for our communities today, Bobby? I mean, where I was just kind of headed about the danger that lurks for minority groups, Jews in this case, but you can sort of extrapolate this text to think about what does it mean to be a minority in an empire in which the majority is not you. And this idea that there is kind of always a danger lurking there, depending on who the particular personalities are, Mm -hmm. that seems exceedingly relevant in our own time. In this moment in which kind of an ethnic nationalism has arisen all across the globe, which is anti-Semitic in part, and also anti-Black and anti-other people of color, and has found its way into a situation of power, we have this moment where the Book of Esther suddenly kind of flashes into relevance again. Maybe it's always relevant in that way, but now it's particularly obvious, I think, to many of us. And so to think about what does the Book of Esther say to a time like this, and one of those, I think, is exactly that line in chapter four, which we didn't read, but where Mm -hmm. Mordecai says to, to Esther, maybe it's for a time like this that you became the queen of Persia. I think one can sort of read that as saying, you know, maybe for a time like this, you became whatever you are right now. So you're, you know, as a pastor or as a banker or as a lawyer or as the co-host of a podcast about the Bible, like maybe (laughs) you can use that position to do something right now. Like if not now, when? I think that's part of the message of this text. And then one of the things that I find really fascinating, and I try to work this out a little bit in my book about the book of Esther is it offers us these three models now that we've talked about it and maybe others as well, but Queen Vashti, Mordecai, and Esther, who all stand up in various ways against the forces of patriarchy and against the forces of ethnic nationalism, but they do so in pretty different ways. So Vashti, who was at the center of power, used a moment to embarrass the king at great kind of personal expense to herself, but she sort of uh, showed the world the kind of artificiality of the power structure of the empire in ways that made it tremble even just for a minute. Mordecai, I think kind of similarly, takes a stand literally by not bowing down to Haman. He he doesn't do what he's supposed to do, uh, which calls out this kind of, this, this ethnic nationalism that's been under the surface suddenly bursts out. And I think Mordecai did that on purpose. I, I don't have any great reason to think that, but I, I like reading the text that way, that he's, he's called, he knows who Haman is and he's called that out. But at the end of the day, he can't do anything about it. He can protest in the street, but he's not going to change the law. And mm-hmm. then Esther, who's inside the palace, who is protected in her own way, is the only one who actually can change things. 
And after a moment of reluctance, then she exercises this careful strategic plan that understands how laws are made and how egos work and very, very cautiously and carefully and patiently lays out this strategy. So you get these three kind of models. And, you know, in in our own time, I think sometimes we have this, people are out in the street protesting and they're saying to people who are in positions of power, like, why aren't you out here protesting? Mm-hmm. And people in positions of power who can act, who can change laws saying to people who are in the streets, like, stop being out in the streets protesting. Like, you, you can't do anything unless you're in here where I am. And I think the book of Esther says we need both of those. We need people in the street who are willing to risk themselves to kind of call out and make obvious what is under the surface. And then we also need people who are in positions where they can work the protocols, work the system and make it and make a difference. And if, if we would stop sort of bickering across that line and say, how can we form alliances inside and outside of the palace, then maybe that's the way we actually get some things done. I really land, you know, very similarly to where you have landed on this. I have heard Esther referred to as the accidental activist. Mm. And I need to sort of admit here that I I used to really not like Esther very much. I felt like she did the absolute minimum Mm, (laughs) and she only did it like the same part, the part of the text where you pull out that beautiful, those beautiful words from Mordecai, maybe you are here just for this moment or, you know, whatever it was. He also has to say to her, don't you think that just because you're in the palace, you're going to be safe? You're going to be killed. And if you don't help us, we'll find help from somewhere else. But this is your life on the line. Yeah. Like it it has to be very pointed. Yeah. To motivate Esther to think like, okay, I, I don't have a choice. Like my choices here are death one way or death the other. Yeah. And so I didn't find this to be very brave. And Vashti seemed much more like a heroine to me. And I wanted yeah. to just lean into Vashti. But, you know, over the past several years watching in sort of the public sphere, so many different times where people have realized that they are uniquely situated to do something important. And they didn't necessarily want to be uniquely situated to do that, but they are. Yeah. And so they do it. So like I'm thinking, and there are a million examples, but of Sally Yates, for example, yeah. who was Like, I remember when she first stood up for what she believed in and she was like doing her job and saying no to the executive branch. You can't do you can't do what you've done. And I remember feeling a moment of like, that's great. And then immediately this dread of she's just going to get fired. Yeah. But as I and she did. But as I sat with that, I actually started to feel encouraged by it. Like. I don't have to figure out how everything is going to play out and how to manipulate all the parts in the system. And I don't always get to choose when I will or won't be in a position to have an audience with powerful people or with the public. But when I'm in that position, I just need to get really clear about what is my job, like professionally and as a human being and as a citizen, and do the thing that you believe is that you truly believe is true and necessary. Mm-hmm. And that's what you can do. Like, that's that's all we really can do. And we don't necessarily, yeah. we don't get to choose or to know in advance when these little upticks in power may come for us. Like, when all of a sudden you're the person who has the audience, but we have the responsibility to use them 
when they pop up, and Esther does. Esther uses it when it pops up for her, even if she didn't want it, and even if she had to really be persuaded that she had no way out of this. Yeah. And so I'll say, while it may not be very, like, Disney movie brave, it does seem very true to life to me, and very... I mean, I guess that's what I always come back to with the biblical text, that the, some of the things in there that bother me the most because they're so messy are really deeply true. And so I think that Esther is a true role model for me in that way. Yeah, no, I love that. And I, you know, this idea of sort of act accidental activism, you know, I think there are some of us who have only recently gotten engaged in things and... That idea that sometimes people get engaged rather belatedly and reluctantly, but their engagement still matters. I think that's really yeah. important to say, you know, maybe we maybe we should have woken up earlier, but we can wake up now. But we're here now, and that yeah. matters. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. <sighs> so, Amy, this is the end, can you believe it, of season one of Bible Worm. Remember how like one Saturday I called you up and I was like, hey, Amy, I've decided we're going to ho host a podcast together. And then like eight days later on a Sunday, we posted. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> and if you go back and listen to episode one of NLDR, you can tell that we pulled yes. that thing together in eight days, not <laughs> knowing what we were doing. Real quick and dirty. <laughs> quick have, and dirty. We have come how, a long All the way. good things start. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to pick up again in September with our new season of Bible Worm. We're following the narrative lectionary again for the next season. And we're going to take a couple of weeks of hiatus, and then we will be back. And I hope you'll be back with us. We have really loved, we have loved interacting with all of you on Facebook and hearing your comments and thoughts and requests. And thank you. All right, Amy and everybody, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. See you then. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Bible Worm. And with this, our first season is complete. I hope you'll be back with us when we pick up again with the Narrative Lectionary next month. Until then, be well and keep studying.